I keep trying to find a good word for this process yeah. of becoming a rhinoceros. <laughs> Wonderful welcome to all of you out there in podcast land. Welcome back to No Script, a theater podcast. We are here to have an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts as we are every week. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Yes, I'm so grateful to get to have another conversation with all of you out there and with you, Jacob, about another of theater's best scripts. Yes, we are at the very back end of what has been a delightful season of plays. Every new season that we get to do is just full of a huge variety of scripts, some of the great scripts of all time, some of the new scripts that are out there that are making waves, some scripts neither of us or maybe many of you have ever heard of and it's uh it's just a great joy and and as we're in the process now of scheduling out and figuring out what next season is going to look like it's great to have the anticipation of the next big group of scripts that we're going to get to talk about right yeah yeah coming up next season there'll be another bunch of great scripts uh we got one more uh today's and then next week's as well uh for this season and then we're going to be taking a bit of a hiatus but don't worry we'll be back we got the whole season almost lined up at this point for next season so uh you can look forward to us coming back sometime in the late summer early fall region yeah, we'll take our normal break like always. We we try to keep things in a nice predictable schedule for you all. So like Jackson said, we'll be back sometime late summer, early fall, sometime around then. And then we'll have another f- great fall, winter season. And it'll have all of the things you know and love. It'll have a guest episode. There'll be a themed month. There'll be a huge variety of scripts. We'll have classics and new scripts. It's going to be really exciting. We're excited about it. But we're not done with this season yet. So we're not ready to leave that behind. We've got a great conversation today, and then we've got a conversation next week. I think we've already announced it, so I'm not spoiling anything about one of my favorite musicals, Company. I'm so, so, so excited to talk about it. So we're looking forward to that. But today we are traveling, it's not so much back in time, but into one of the realms of theater, let's call it. It's not quite a genre or a style. I like the word realm, one of the realms of theater today. Uh, We're talking about a new playwright to the podcast, though a playwright that I'm sure many, most, all of you know, and you've probably read a different script by this playwright uh, as part of maybe theater education or even like an English class, Um, but this is one of the most popular plays by this playwright that we're talking about today. Today, it is Eugene Ionesco's play, The Rhinoceros. Yes, The Rhinoceros. Uh, the, the other play that Jacob was referring to is likely The Bald Soprano. You that is uh, <laughs> That is uh, often a play that is read in classes from this author. And yet The Rhinoceros is a little bit more of a kind of a, a, a long form play. Uh, Bald Soprano is, is a full length play too. But, but this one uh, has some really unique elements in it. And of course, both of them are written by Ionesco and he is an absurdist playwright. Um, he he uh, u- utilizes the tools of absurdism to have good conversations around theater and around issues um, uh, in the real world, but set against backdrops of absurdism. So uh, that'll be uh, an exciting part of the conversation as well. And The Rhinoceros is less of an absurd play than The Bald Soprano is. It doesn't have 
quite as many specific characteristics from what we would call the theater of the absurd. The Bald Soprano is kind of one of the highlighting plays of the theater of the absurd. And the the rhinoceros has a, like a real plot, you know, so right. it's, it's a little bit less absurd. And like all the playwrights who have been categorized as the theater of the absurd, Ionesco pushed back against that too. So it'll be interesting, I think, to talk about this play rather than The Bald Soprano as our first Ionesco play, as we were kind of joking about before we started recording. It's nice to yeah. talk about one with like a real plot and characters <laughs> who have like goals that they pursue across the, rather than jumping right into The Bald Soprano, which right. is a, it'd be a whole world to try to have an hour conversation about that play. It's true. This play, with the exception of the one core element in it, could be a you know just a, a pretty much a, a like an argument drama. Yeah, I mean the whole play is categorized by just these series of arguments, these series of wild encounters that keep happening. In fact, in preparation, of course, we listen to interviews and researchers and all that kind of stuff. And some people have made the case that the rhinoceros, more than being a play of the theater of the absurd, is a like nowadays we would call it a magical realism play that. Right. actually yeah, more yeah, yeah. comfortably fits in that category than the category of theater of the absurd. Of course, we've just robbed about a good five minutes from the context and conversation <laughs> that we're really going to have because we're just so excited. I love the rhinoceros. Um, it, it may not be my favorite Inesco play. I actually really love the chairs. Um, I think oh, if I were yep. going to only direct one, I might direct the chairs, but the rhinoceros is probably a close second. So clearly we're excited to talk about it. Yeah, definitely. It's going to be a good conversation. But before we get into it, I do want to take just a second and thank our patrons over at patreon.com slash Podcast. Thank you all so much for being a part of keeping NoScript going. Those of you who uh, listen to the show know that we love getting to do this show. You can probably hear it in our conversation already today. We love getting to talk about plays and we love getting to talk about them with all of you out there in podcast land. The patrons over at patreon.com slash Podcast help us out because the podcast isn't free. Alas, um, there are various costs associated with uh, running a podcast, hosting it online, the scripts and the time involved and all that business. So Thank you to our patrons over at patreon.com slash podcast. If you're looking for a way to help out the show, whether you're just starting listening now or have been a long-time member and just looking to get involved in the community a little bit more, that's a great way to do it. There's a bunch of different tiers over there at on Patreon, and you can sign up for as low as $1 a month. And at that $1 a month, $12 over the course of a year, you're helping out the show just a ton. So uh, thank you to all of our patrons once again. And if you are considering uh, joining the NoScript community and helping out the show, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast, and we will see you over there. And now, back to the script. All Here right. we go. Eugenie Esco, uh, Romanian-French playwright. He was born in 1909 um, and spent much of his life in France. He, he bounced back and forth a little bit, but ended up kind of settling in France. He studied literature originally and was, was a writer for the majority of his career, also an editor and a copywriter to make his money. He, but he did not really step into drama until he was basically 40 years old. So uh, quite a ways through his career, he kind of pivoted and became one of the great dramatists of all time. Uh, So well done, Ionesco, on that. That late career change really paid off for you. Um, (laughs) He wrote wrote his his plays in French, so of course we're reading English translations of French plays. Um, As we've already discussed, the most famous of his plays are The Bald Soprano and The Rhinoceros. Um, Those two plays are the most produced and the most well-known of all of his works, the most uh, lauded as well. 
the term theater of the absurd was a term that was coined well after he started to write plays by a guy named Martin Eslin in 1961. So Ionesco himself did not call what he did the theater of the absurd. In fact, he actually used this phrase anti-plays to describe this whole bunch of plays that he wrote early in his playwriting career, these these one-act plays of which The Bald Soprano is kind of the highlight. Um, and these he called them anti-plays, again, kind of focus on the futility of communication. There, there's communication breakdowns that define the play. They, they parody conventional theater forms, but mess with them, uh, turn them on their heads. They're very much lacking in traditional storylines of any kind. This, the structure doesn't come from like a plot where event follows event. It comes from repetition. It comes from circular logic. It comes from uh, just a whole bunch of non sequiturs. I mean, just, just uh, phrases that don't mean much in the context of anything else. Um, th- there's a very mechanical sense to how the, the characters repeat and interact with each other. And, and that kind of describes that bulk of one-act plays, again, from his early writing career. He actually grew as a playwright and ended up writing more full-length works with much more traditional storylines, much more humanized characters, of which the rhinoceros is the highlight. Um, uh, obviously, Ionesco is a hugely well lauded dude. He, he was elected to the Academy Francaise in 1970, uh, won a huge bulk of other prizes um, Tours Festival Prize for Film, the Prix Italiana, the Society of Authors Theatre Prize, the Grand Prix National for Theatre, the Monaco Grand Prix, the Australian State Prize for European Literature, the Jerusalem Prize, the Honorary Doctors from New York University and the universities of <laughs> all these other places. I mean, he is one of the great defining dramas dramatists, not of the 20th century only, although that was where his writing and his life took place, but carrying into this century, he continues to be uh, produced, lauded, and his plays really, really hold up. Um, he was a well-known critic of Brecht and Brechtian theater, and actually in the le- kind of later part of his career, he did a lot of writing of essays and um, uh, dialogue about theater, in which a lot of it was kind of pushing back against Brecht and, and what Brecht did to the theater. Um, he, his, his character, Beranger, which is the protagonist of this play, appears in many of those long-form plays that he wrote in that middle part of his career. The Killer, Exit the King, Stroll in the Air, Hunger and Thirst. Uh, Beranger is kind of this everyman playwright stand-in that he wrote into all of those plays. Uh, and the rhinoceros, again, is that as well. Um, so the Rhinoceros was self-written in 1959 in Germany. It was originally a short story by Ionesco, which he then turned into this long-form drama. Um, it, you know, we like to talk about productions, but there's been thousands of productions of this play all over the world in, in so many different languages. I just want to highlight four for you here. Um, just to kind of highlight, they're all going to be more modern productions, just to kind of highlight the life that the play still has. First of all, there is a 1974 movie starring Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder. Performances in it are great. However, it did change the script and the play pretty significantly, added a whole dream sequence, and it does reset the play in America and change all the characters' names from these French names to American names. So keep that in mind, but there is a movie where you can kind of get a sense of the dialogue and the characters and such. Um, And then three more modern productions just to kind of show you the life that the rhinoceros still has. Of course, in 2007, uh, the Royal Court Theater produced a play with Jasper Britton as Jean and Benedict Cumberbatch as Baron 
Protégé. You can watch clips. You can watch some great interviews with uh, these two incredible actors about this incredible script. That is worth your time. If you like Ionesco, if you like the rhinoceros, you like this conversation, check it out. Because, of course, Benedict Cumberpatch is incredible. And to watch him talk about this character, this play, um, is just a real treat. He was a much younger man then. Um, and you can also see scenes and such from that as well. Um, in 2017, the Catastrophic Theater, which is in Houston, um, produced the work. And the Catastrophic Theater is kind of a smaller avant-garde play, uh, theater. That's what the kind of work that they try to do. So smaller avant-garde theater produces this play, The Rhinoceros, one of the great plays of the Theater of the Absurd and of UNESCO's canon. And then in 2020, the City Theater in Paris, which is one of the major theater institutions in Paris, uh, comparable to something like the National Theater in London, produces it in, in just before the pandemic. So you can see the kind of the the huge sweep of theaters that produce this thing. Smaller avant-garde places, major national institution places. The Rhinoceros is very much alive and well as a piece of dramatic literature. Yeah, so then jumping into the kind of synopsis of of the play, just to kind of give you a broad sweep of it um, so that we can engage the conversation well. Um, The play is set in a small village in France, Um, a nondescript small village in France, but something where there's at least a fair amount of people in there. Um, Two friends are, are meeting at a coffee shop. Um, the, the first person I believe we, well, actually they come on relatively at the same time. Jean comes in, who is this very well dressed individual. He, he looks all done up. He's in a nice suit. And then Berenger comes in, who Jacob, uh, teased us from the beginning. Berenger, um, comes in disheveled. Uh, he has a, a kind of frumpy suit on, very wrinkled. Um, he seems kind of un, uh, unkempt. Uh, his hair is all over the place. And the start of the play is kind of just the conversation between these to as Jean kind of berates Berenger for his appearance and the way he lives life too. It comes out pretty quickly that uh, he is addicted to alcohol in some way. He's a drunkard. Um, he he is less inclined to admit that though Jean uh, pretty blatantly says so. Um, and 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 they begin this conversation back and forth. Right, it's kind of friends getting together. Um, one for this is uh, Jean keeps like giving him different things to help him look better. Gives him a comb. Gives him uh, di- different things to try to help him out. And then out of nowhere, this rumbling starts to happen. This like big kind of drumming of, of, of something, something stampedish sounding, and it becomes louder and louder, and the people in the street start coming out. There's a grocer involved. Um, everyone is, is kind of coming out into the street and saying, what's that sound? What's that sound? And they're all beginning to kind of say kind of repetitive lines of, of, of uh, what's going on? What is this? What's, what's happening? And Finally, they all begin to see a rhinoceros uh, running through the streets of this little French town. Um, and it, it runs off. Uh, someone runs on stage. She's carrying a cat. This uh, house or not uh, uh, a housewife, I believe, is the name of the character comes on stage with this cat who's running away from this rhinoceros and the rhinoceros kind of rampages around, goes off and kind of runs up further into the town. Then everyone begins to have conversation around this <laughs> this odd appearance in a French village of a rhinoceros. Uh, lots of back and forth happens. There's a number of uh, uh, characters who are named for their 
uh, descriptors. There's a logician, an old gentleman, as I said, the grocer, there's the grocer's wife, and all these characters are kind of bringing their different perspective onto the rhinoceros that has come running through the town square. A this different perspective and the same perspective. They they all repeat the same sort of phrases. This is very Ionescian. That's not really yeah. a word, but I've made it up now where they all <laughs> say the same things over and over again. Well yep. of all things is a big thing that they say a bunch of times. Well of all right. things. Right. Well, of all things, yeah. Baron Jay is kind of the outlier in that conversation. He doesn't uh, react the same way as the rest of them do. Um, he's 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 kind of uh, slower on the uptake uh, to the conversation. Um, eventually, the rhinoceros uh, stampedes, or <laughs> well, this is a, another uh, uh, issue of argument: is whether the rhinoceros comes back and stampedes again, or another rhinoceros comes through. Um, but uh, a second event happens, and the rhinoceros charges through the square, this time uh, killing the lady's cat, um, and uh, uh, much, much more tragedy ensues on this run-through, um, and uh, then begins a pretty lengthy uh, debate between uh uh, Jean and Berenger as to whether this was the same rhinoceros, um, a different rhinoceros, whether there was one horn or two horns on said rhinoceros, and whether the first one had one or two horns, uh, whether they're uh, an Asian rhinoceros or an African rhinoceros, uh, and uh, all of this is kind of uh, helped kind of helped by uh, the logician who steps in and and really just confuses the matter more by uh, some some kind of uh, twisted logicking. That's kind of the end of that first scene. Um, the second scene is uh, Berenger's workplace. Now, uh, Berenger, uh, probably the other notable thing from Act 1 that we know is Berenger is in love with the receptionist at his workplace. She briefly comes in into the first scene, sees the rhinoceros, and, uh, and then uh, leaves, and assumedly heading to work. The second scene starts in the office. Uh, everyone is there. We meet a couple more characters. There's Daisy, who we've uh, met in scene one, Mr. Papillon, uh, Dudard, and Botard. And these are all uh, uh, Baron J's co-workers. And they're having a conversation about the rhinoceros that stampeded through town and the cat that subsequently died as a result of the rhinoceros stampeding through town. Daisy is bringing a first-hand account of the event. Uh, she has seen it herself, and she is trying to convince other people that it happened, but but especially Batard is having none of it. Um, he, he doesn't believe it. He believes it's all conspiracy. He believes that uh, there's no way that, that rhinoceroses could be in France ever. Um, and uh, so, so there's this uh, rather lengthy conversation about whether the rhinoceros exists at all. Berenger comes in late to work. Uh, he uh, manages to grab his time card from Daisy as she's about to lock them up for the day, clocks in, and joins the conversation as well. Eventually, Mr. Papillon, or Pep, I, I don't speak French, sorry, Pap <laughs> Papillon uh, uh, gets them all to shut up and get to work. Uh, he, he tells them he won't pay them if they're not doing their work, and they start working. Um, into the scene, eventually, runs Mrs. Booth. Now, Mrs. Booth is uh, the wife of, I assume, <laughs> Mr. Booth, um, who is a co-worker of theirs who didn't show up to work today. He was rather sick. She comes in and says she was chased by a rhinoceros all the way to here. Um, uh, she had word from her husband that he was feeling sick, and he had a flu. He was out in the country, and he wasn't going to come in. She was chased here to work all day, and and uh, the rhinoceros is still downstairs. <laughs> the, the rhinoceros is kind of rampaging uh, around the downstairs and destroys their staircase um, to their upper floor office area. 
Now, uh, through through a series of events, they they call in the firefighters <laughs> to try to save them, and uh, through a series of events that are that are wending and winding, Mrs. Boof discovers that uh, the rhinoceros below stairs is in, is in fact Mr. Boof, um, and uh, she's convinced of this fact. Uh, she she jumps downstairs and rides off with uh, her husband rhinoceros. Now we're starting to get into kind of the magical realism realm, right? Like all of a sudden we're starting to get get a little bit more wondering about what these rhinoceroses are, which is compounded in the second scene of Act Two, where Baron J, uh, having been rescued by the firemen who come to help them out of the two-story window because there's no staircase, goes to visit his friend John, who is at home sick that day, and. And uh, through a lengthy discussion with them, we see a metamorphosis happen in John. Um, he is uh, what what is probably a cold, uh, or at least starts as a cold, turns into kind of a raspy voice, a barely intelligible voice. A bump on his head begins to materialize and uh, grow into a full-fledged rhinoceros horn. He begins to turn green, and over the course of their conversation, he turns into a rhinoceros. Berenger is understandably appalled um, by this and uh, goes next door, tries to get neighbors help and 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 uh, to no avail. Uh, he goes to the windows and sees there's more rhinoceroses around in the street. We hear this kind of rumbling happening around. Goes back to the neighbors. They've turned into rhinoceroses. And so he eventually just kind of gets out of there. Um, act three is... Berenger at home. He wakes up uh, having had a nightmare. Uh, he's got a bandage around his head. The the one person who comes and visits him eventually is Dudard, um, who is one of his co-workers. And uh, he shows up and has a pretty lengthy debate with Berenger around whether Berenger should be afraid of the rhinoceroses as much as he is. Berenger is suffering from anxiety as to whether he will get this disease, whether or not uh, it's right that all these people are succumbing to the rhinoceros metamorphosis. Um, and uh, and, and they, they continue this debate for a while. Dudard uh, has some good arguments as to why uh, Berenger should at least stay open to the idea that the rhinocerosing is a good thing. I keep trying to find a good word for this process yeah. of becoming a rhinoceros. <laughs> they, they end up titling the disease rhinoceritis, but yeah. it's like, what is the transformation process called? Rhinocerizing. Yep. <laughs> Rhinocerizing. We'll, we'll work by the end of the episode. We'll have something. Um, Daisy comes into this scene uh, and and brings supper. Uh, she is uh, bringing supper to Berenger, and he is uh, uh, slowly kind of convinced that he's not immediately deathly sick. Um, uh, but all the while, there's this kind of rumbling happening. There's packs of rhinoceroses. Uh, going through the streets. More and more people he discovers have turned into rhinoceroses. Their boss, Mr. Papillon, has turned into one. Even Batard, who is uh, so against it, has turned into a rhinoceros. And and more and more it becomes clearer, or at least as far as the story is concerned, that these are the last three humans left, um, at least in the, in the town that they're in. Um... Eventually, uh, Dudard caves and says that he's going to go. He has uh, loyalty to his fellow co-workers who has already turned into rhinoceri, and uh, he uh, heads off downstairs to uh, become a rhinoceros and join the pack. Um, 
Daisy and Baron J have another uh, kind of lengthy uh, debate-ish around this. For a while, they're aligned as to they should stay uh, stay human. They uh, are in love with each other to some degree, even though the, their relationship is like a day old. Um, and they, they say they're going to uh, stay together. Uh, over the course of like the next 10 pages, uh, they have enough argument that one of the characters says, it feels like we've gone through 25 years of marriage in the last minute or 10 minutes or something like that. So... Uh, eventually, uh, Daisy leaves. It's not 100% clear whether she's leaving to join the rhinoceros pack, but nonetheless, uh, 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 Berenger is left alone with, like, what has slowly been building all of these uh, rhinoceros heads that are kind of appearing on set and a little bit more of this kind of magical realism, absurdist sort of thing where these rhinoceros heads are kind of floating around set. We see a lot of rhinoceri horns running past the apartment during the scenes. He's he's left on his own, kind of reflecting on his position as the last of the humans in his knowledge, um, and whether or not uh, he he kind of wavers for a little bit, wonders if he should join the herd, but then lands on not at least for the last moment of the scene, lands on remaining human and trying to convince them all, though he cannot speak to them of the the benefits of remaining human. He ends the play by shouting. I'll take on the whole of them. I'll put up a fight against a lot of them. The whole lot of them. I'm the last man left, and I'm staying that way until the end. I'm not capitulating. Yep. So that's kind of a wild ride. Um. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, it, it, the, the plot sounds sort of silly, doesn't it? I mean, people are turning into rhinoceroses. You can just choose to join this con- sort of conformist movement of becoming a rhinoceros, and one guy stands up against it. And yet, despite the silliness and the, uh, the magic of it, uh, you know, this is this play has been called by many people many times over a work of absolute genius. And like any work of genius, there's a whole group of people who say, no, this was kind of a overly simple, uh, silly magic endeavor by Ionesco, not one of his more works of genius. But those people are in the minority overall. I mean, this is held to be one of his best plays and one of the better plays of this whole realm of plays that Ionesco belongs to. Right, yeah, and I think part of that is wrapped up in uh, in in some of the context in which he's writing, right? Like he's he's writing from the position of you know nineteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds Europe, right? So this is the rise during the rise of fascism, um, and so he's he's writing into this world where he saw fascism rise um, in his country and in the countries that he was uh, living in very quickly. Um, and, and kind of saw people succumb to that, uh, worldview very quickly. So you, you have, uh, in this kind of fanciful way, you know, because, because we're talking about people turning into rhinoceroses, we can have all these interesting debates, right? The logician at the beginning tries to convince people that cats are dogs and vice versa, um, and has this kind of meaningless, uh, debate about how many legs would be left on two cats if you took six away. Um, so so you kind of get these windows into uh, the sort of arguments that slowly led to the sort of world that uh, the early 1900s Europe was in, where, where something like fascism could roll its way into popular opinion um, just by the kind of the, the virtue of it being a pack 
mentality or a herd mentality. And you can see that that metaphor, that commentary really evolve in the way that Ionesco contrasts how characters talk about the rhinoceroses versus sort of the reality of what the rhinoceroses are doing. As a character, and of course we see several characters across the course of the play decide to become rhinoceroses, as they their mind is sort of changed on that, their perception of the rhinoceroses shifts, right? They start to say things like, you know, they're kind of innocent looking. They're cute. They're not really hurting anybody. They're singing out there. They're dancing. They're very human. You can see their faces. They look very happy. They're sort of their perception of these rhinoceroses as being nonviolent, very peaceful, sort of art-loving creatures of the jungle. Right. That starts to evolve in them as they start to shift their thinking about becoming a rhinoceros. But that line of thinking is not really in line with what the rhinoceroses are actually doing. Anytime somebody looks out the window and describes what's going on, these rhinoceroses are trampling businesses to the ground. They're killing cats. You can hear all throughout both of the scenes that take place in the apartments things getting knocked over and destroyed, walls destroyed by the rhinoceroses all around them. And then as we watch Jean actually transform into a rhinoceros on stage, he starts to say things Things like this, which I just think is such a great line. He says, this is kind of in the middle of his transformation. It's not that I hate people. I'm just indifferent to them, or rather they disgust me. They'd better keep out of my way or I'll run them down. Later, yeah. he threatens to trample Berenger. Right, so the the as he becomes a rhinoceros, he takes on this attitude of violence, this attitude of trampling out of my way. And so... You can see Ionesco's commentary there, right? Like, as the movement sweeps you up, you start to say, well, it's not that bad. They're actually all that, uh, they're pretty innocent. They're just people like anybody else. They've got all this art and culture. But that is divorced from the reality of the situation where, in the metaphor of the play, the rhinoceroses are really violent. They're destroying this community. Right. You, you see a, a host of reasons why people eventually decide to join the rhinoceros, right? Some of it you get secondhand. You hear, you know, some people say they just wanted a rest or something like that. And so they left their job and became a rhinoceros. Um, you you uh, have uh, Dudard later on who has this like uh, feelings of responsibility or loyalty to his uh, fellow um, co-workers who have already turned into rhinoceroses. And uh, and so that's the reason why he decides to go uh, go ahead and do it. He um, claims you have- that Batard, as Batard was finally going to transform, that the last thing that he said, or I think this is actually Daisy says, the last thing that Batard said was, you have to keep up with the times. Right, yeah. So just like trying to stay abreast of of culture and what's happening around you. Um, so, so yeah, you have all these, you know, you can't see my air quotes, but they're there. Um, good reasons for turning into a rhinoceros that people bring up. And and you have Berenger then, kind of the, the everyman who is kind of stuck in between, clearly appalled by everyone's transformations into rhinoceroses and afraid um, both for his safety because he sees them trampling everything Thing, but also afraid of him of giving up his humanity, of giving up what he uh, considers is an essential part of himself, um, being not a rhino, um, and uh, and and so you you see a little bit of his um, 
uh, both strong stance against that, but also the waffling occasionally of him trying to hold on to his humanity versus uh, uh, surviving the allure of turning into what everyone else is turning into. Right. He makes several stirring defenses of humanity and humanism, which frankly seem a little bit out of character for Ionesco, who has got yeah. some like sort of commentary about the mechanization of human life in a lot of his earlier works. And this play comes around and it's a very humanist work, a, a very uh, a kind play to... Um, um, not two humans, because of course most of them decide to become rhinoceroses. But it, <laughs> it, it, about sort of the ideal of what humanity could be. Yeah, yeah, and and you you get you get the the kind of nice version of that from uh, Berenger, who holds down holds down the fort right on 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 the goodness of humanity, while around him are spinning all of these bad examples of humanity. Not not the humans themselves, but what humanity can do. You have uh, Batard who just will not believe um, someone else's account of something. He he he, he refuses to believe Daisy, um, who who uh, actually saw the rhinoceros go through the town. He refused to uh, uh, f- refuses to believe secondhand accounts of what has happened um, the, with the cat dying. There are newspapers, so they 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 have like the news of this thing happening. Um, and he, he refuses to get on board with that. Um, he even gets into a fight with Dudard at the, at the time and tries to convince them all that this is a, like a big conspiracy around them, that, that there are people, he even blames Dudard specifically for trying to start this thing. So you have different examples of humanity around Berenger that is, um, not, not, uh, living to the fullness of, of what they could, they could, uh, possibly be as humans. Yeah, and it it becomes sort of a play about like what is Berenger ultimately going to do as these characters one by one drop off around him, and, and of course the the kind of the surface level commentary of the piece is about this conformity, individualism in the face of conformity, the heroism of choosing not to conform to uh, what everybody else around you is doing. Interesting. I, I watched a little bit of an interview with a. Um, this uh, this gal who's been teaching high school for whatever, 30, 40, 50 years, and she teaches the rhinoceros to high schoolers because she really likes the messaging of the play about nonconformity, about uh, not just going along with what your friends are doing, basically. And that and that, there's so much more in this play that follow that falls down from that point, you know, that fills in the depths of that point politically with what was going on around Ionesco. But kind of at the core of Beranger's journey is this sort of anti-hero of individualism. Yeah, okay, so so say, say more about that. So if Beranger is is kind of uh, uh, standing against this this herd mentality, how does that that come out in in him as a character? Well, right. So we see him from the beginning of the play sort of displaced and odd, right? He's he's sort of an outsider from the very beginning. That's why uh, UNESCO has written Jean, giving him such a hard time about his appearance, his choices, um, the way that he's living his life. It's sort of counter to the, the ideal life that Jean presents to Berger, and he's different than that. He's outside of that. And then right away, we see the first rhinoceros, and basically the whole of the crowd around 
around Beranger reacts in a very specific way and in a very conformist way, right? They say the same things over and over and over, the same phrases about the rhinoceros. I mean, you know, like all five to ten of them say, oh, a rhinoceros. And then, you know, all of them say, well, of all things. And then they do all of that again the next time the rhino comes around. So from the very beginning, Beranger is a character who is contrary to the the flow of the people around him and that maybe sets up why he is not he is going to be the one who resists this movement to simply become rhinoceroses throughout the play at the same time he's a he's a hero quote unquote who's got all of these problems he's a drunkard he's undoubtedly depressed he's late to work all the time he is argumentative all of this stuff so he's sort of an anti-hero in that yeah. I mean it's not like he's hard to like but the liking is almost kind of a pitying <laughs> yeah yeah no that's that's a, that's a good distinction because he is I mean there, there are there are many things about himself that I think he would want to change um beyond beyond just what society is like what specifically what John is telling him to change um over and over he has these kind of self battles that he's going through like he he does at least attest to really wanting to give up alcohol um and and he makes tons of excuses for why he hasn't um he he he, uh he at one point says um uh, i'm gonna give this up as soon as the whole rhinoceritis thing is over which i decided beforehand even um so the the kind of lack of logic in in his his own journey with that just lying right i mean we know that that's not true then later daisy comes and says have you had a drink today and he says no i've been really good and we all know that he has right yep yep so so yeah there are definitely things about him I, I i like i like the kind of anti-hero the the one the one whom for whom society uh has less sway but who still has uh things wrong with him that he's he's still working on in himself kind of makes him kind of grounds him in in a very human character um who i i agree we we may be we may be pity but he has a lot of just kind of general endearingness too um he's he's not he's even as jean is kind of haranguing him um he he has this kind of good-natured acceptance of of that haranguing so so there there i think there are there's there's like just good character stuff to to make him endearing to us as well so so much of this play is a little bit different than what ionesco does in a play like the bald soprano but so much of it is you can see that characteristic stamp of himself in it as well the repetition that defines the bald soprano it really comes through in this play as well even as there is a fuller storyline and a plot and characters who make decisions that drive this play rather than the circular logic and repetition of the bald soprano but the repetition is there uh you know according to i didn't do do all this counting myself i pulled this from somebody who has written some commentary about the play so if it's wrong i apologize but according to this person well of all things is a phrase that's said about 26 times in the play um it's never too late is repeated about 22 times in the play exercise your mind concentrate supposedly is repeated about 20 times in the play not to mention scenes which repeat themselves as well both times the rhinoceros comes through there's a scene where the characters respond with this phrase oh a rhinoceros over and over and over when 
uh, Berenger visits Jean in his apartment. Jean and he have an exchange about how they can't recognize each other's voices anymore. And then in the very next scene, when Dotard visits, uh, or Dutter, or Dutter, whatever we're saying, visits <laughs> no. Berenger in uh, Berenger's apartment, Berenger begins that exact exchange again, but now he's the sick one rather than the one visiting. But Dutard immediately says, I can recognize your voice. I don't know what you're talking about. And that kind of breaks this repetitive cycle. But you can see that rep, that Ionescian repetition of the exact same scene over again start until it is interrupted by a character. Right. And that's even down to the setting, too. At least the stage directions call for repetition in the room, even. Like, there's similarities between the newspaper office to Jean's bedroom and then to Baron Jay's bedroom as well. They call for really similar space. And I wonder if there isn't, like, something about that last scene that you're describing, the breaking of the pattern, that kind of is the the stranger coming to town moment or the thing that stops the railroad from happening in the play. Um, because, uh, He's, he's kind of self-fulfilling his journey to Rhino in that scene, right? Like, he's sitting there, he thinks he's sick, he thinks his voice is beginning to change, he has a bandage around his head because he's too afraid to look to see if there's a bump on his head. He starts the scene with the same dialogue that he just spoke with Jean, and yet Dadard kind of derails that for him. He's like, no, you're, you're fine, I... I can hear you just fine. <laughs> you're you're gonna be okay. Um, and 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 so that that kind of derailing of the pattern uh, that that has started really from the first scene with those repetitions of the lines, with the repetitions of the place, um, is is kind of broken in that third scene where we see a lot of the catalyst of the choices of these last three remaining humans. Yeah, and I, I think that that that's an interesting perspective. That as we come into the third act. What is going to happen to Berenger to break the cycle, not just of Ionesca's structure of the play of repetition, but also the cycle of all the humans are becoming rhinos? I mean, if that follows in that pattern, all the humans will be rhinos, including Berenger. So in order for Berenger to survive as a person, there has to be some break in whatever is going on. And what that break ends up being is a little bit unclear. I mean, why Berenger is able to resist the temptation of the rhino, at least insofar as we see him. We don't know what happens next afterwards, of course. Right. It, uh, that uh, there's nothing very explicit in the play to me which says this is why Berenger can resist the temptation to become a rhino and everybody else can't. Yeah, no, I agree. It's it's a little bit. I mean, there's there's the last scene where the, these rhino these rhino masks are a thing um, that that are of some importance. These rhino, well, maybe maybe heads is more appropriately. Just the heads of rhinos begin kind yeah, of. There's, I'm sorry to interrupt <laughs> you, but I just want to make this note because it's so funny in the character list. Ionesco has yeah. written all the characters, and then the last character is something like. And a lot of rhino heads. Because <laughs> <laughs> you really will need a lot of them. Um, but, but they've begun to kind of appear upstage. At least the stage directions call for them to kind of appear upstage overlooking the events of the play. Um, and, and they slowly become 
more and more beautiful in some way. Like you begin to see somehow uh, we, we begin to see the allure of these rhino heads. And I, I wonder if that isn't something he, he begins talking to them at the end of the play. Like he addresses them directly, whether or not he's addressing the rhinos in the street or he's just having a break with, with uh, magical surrealism for a moment. Um, you know, whatever. It's a play about people becoming rhinos. Um, but <laughs> but he begins talking to them. Um, and, and I think I, I wonder if there isn't that kind of he, he wakes up to the oppression of them, wakes up to the, the oversight of them and manages, at least in this heroic moment, who knows he's, he's, he's a bit of a feather on the wind sort of character who knows what we're going to, what it's going to be in the next act or the, 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 the act that never got written. But for this moment, that, that oppression overrides his, um, his desire to become one of them, to be, to kind of go with the group. Well, one thing that is different about him is the level of reaction he has to the rhinos. And it's actually different in different ways in the different scenes. One of the, That's one of the things that's so interesting to me about the character. Because when uh, Didard visits Berenger in the final act of the play, Berenger is reacting really strongly to the rhinos. And that sort of begins when he sees Jean transform into a rhino. He is terribly afraid of them. He's terribly afraid of turning into one. The noise of the rhinos are around the building, out in the street, drives him absolutely nuts. And it doesn't to Dudard or even really to Daisy. And both of them separately say, you know, just just let it go. Just ignore him. It's no big deal. Why are you reacting so, you know, just go outside and go for a walk. Yeah, there's rhinos out there, but they're not going to bother you. It's all good, man. Don't worry about it. And so how strongly Berenger reacts to the presence of the rhinos does set him apart a little. But interestingly, he was also set apart by his reaction to the rhinos in act one, but in the opposite direction, right? Yeah. All the crowd around him at the cafe is amazed, is flabbergasted, cannot stop talking about the fact that a rhino would run down the street of this small French town. And Berenger is kind of shrugging it off. I mean, at one point, Jean gets really upset and tries to get him to, you know, it's really dangerous for a rhino to be running around. And Berenger kind of goes, yeah, I guess you're right. I hadn't really thought of it, but <laughs> Yeah, it's probably a little dangerous, you know. So he—it's interesting that the character is set apart by the level of his reaction to rhinos, but in opposite directions at different points in the play. That's true. Yeah, the the kind of juxtaposition of his his mood at the beginning versus mood at the end is really really interesting. Now, of course, with the with the knowledge that uh, Ionesco is is writing about you know social movements and and uh, how you know especially those latter latter parts of the play where Daisy and uh, Dudard are saying you know just don't worry about it. Yeah, it's yeah it's weird. You know yeah they're breaking stuff. Yeah, it's hard to buy groceries because they destroyed the grocery store. Um, but just you know don't worry. You just you need to stop getting so worked up about it. And he's saying, no, there's something wrong. Um, when you when you start thinking about that in the context of social movements and, and possibly oppressive social movements, that becomes a really powerful uh, commentary on, 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 on that aspect, the, the kind of social, um, uh, the, the, the social herd mentality that is at work in this. But I agree that, that it's kind of, it's a little bit derailed by the earlier version of Berenger, who's just like, nah, 
It's fine. Don't worry well, about it. it. It seems like the change in perspective is is directly related to his witnessing Jean transform yeah. before his very eyes. And that, of course, is another lovely layer to that commentary. This idea that, you know, we might be unconcerned about violent or oppressive social movements when they don't affect us. When it's just running down the street. But when you see your friend transform, your family member transform to join one of those violent, oppressive social movements to become a rhinoceros. It becomes very personal, and it can heighten your concern. And there's actually a great line I want to read you from later in the play that kind of echoes that way of thinking that Ionesco's written into the play. Uh, Beranger and Dudard are talking about um, the presence of the rhinos and how it's sort of changed everything about the town. Beranger says, If only it had happened somewhere else in some other country, and we'd just read about it in the papers. One could discuss it quietly, examine the question from all points of view, and come to an objective conclusion. We could con- we could organize debates with professors and writers and lawyers and blue stockings and artists and people. And the ordinary man in the street as well, it would be very interesting and instructive. But when you're involved yourself, when you suddenly find yourself up against the brutal facts, you can't help feeling directly concerned. The shock is too violent for you to stay cool and detached. I'm frankly surprised. I'm very, very surprised. <laughs> I can't get over it. I love that. I'm very, very surprised. Very, very surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, you know, whatever whatever um, ambiguity doesn't survive contact with something personal. So, so uh, yeah, even, uh, and even I think Daisy, I think Daisy is kind of the other question mark character in this play. I think of all the other characters who leave stage, assumedly to become rhinoceros, um, I don't know that she does. I think that's a little up in the air for me. I think that there's there's some degree uh, where the same is true for her, where she has kind of she she eventually figures out she can't live with Baron J. There's just too much uh, at odds with them, even though they basically spent a half hour together. Um, uh, and uh, and she decides to leave, um, but she doesn't leave with the same conviction that Dudard does. Um, she she kind of uh, uh, leaves. Uh, with without the final parting shot, heads downstairs, and I don't I don't know what exactly happens with her. Whether she joins the rhinoceros movement or manages to stay human from afar. Yeah, I, I mean we don't have any other instance where somebody goes downstairs and then it doesn't become a rhinoceros. So it seems like the convention is set up for that. And yeah. Berger does run to the window to try to yell at her about becoming a rhinoceros. But you're right that her exit seems more about her relationship with Berger than it does about wanting to become a rhinoceros. And again, that that's part of this variety of reasons we see for why people join the rhinoceros herd. And that, of course, Ionesco's commentary is just so poignant there, right? There's lots of reasons why uh, you might join a herd. You might conform to something that is otherwise, uh, you you know, otherwise wouldn't. But there's some line of logic that sways you into that herd, and there are a huge variety of things. I mean, to me, one of the more poignant ones is Batard, who this happens off stage. You just hear it from Daisy. We've already talked about this, who says that he just wants to keep up with the times. Yeah. Yeah. Someone like Batard, who was so vehemently against both the possibility at first, the possibility that this could exist at all, right? That the like the rhinoceroses in France could exist at all. But then once he sees it with his own eyes, he's vehemently convinced that this is not 
like a natural thing that there is some nefarious thing afoot um, and that he's going to he's going to pin it on Didard, especially because he has some sort of hatred of Didard. Um So so, yeah, to see that eventually succumb to, well, I just kind of have to keep up with what's happening around me um, is is an, is another great example. Another another example of how easy it is, how slippery um, that that particular hill is to kind of fall into that herd mentality. And then, of course, the play is wildly funny. Ionesco right. has just such a unique, clever sense of humor. The way he writes dialogue is just incredibly funny, incredibly witty. Yeah, yeah. The, the whole first scene, there's probably like 10 characters on scene or something like that because there's a bunch of townspeople around. And it's just really fast, really quick witted. In fact, there's a couple different uh, stage directions that really call to keep the pace going, to not have this be a slow scene. Um, and and that that um, kind of keeps the, the kind of craziness or the, or the absurdity of, of a rhino running through. And, and then these subsequent very logical conversations or philosophical debates about the the uh, possibilities of, of, of the rhino um, hit you really funny <laughs> um, especially especially between John and Berenger and the old man and uh, the logician like there's a lot of great exchanges there and there's just so many great kind of one-off lines like late in act three Berenger's phone is ringing and he says it's the authorities I tell you I recognize the ring right. the long drawn out <laughs> ring yeah it's like he's had experience with this before or something like that like he's I know, I know that ring. I guess I gotta answer it. So, or, or when they're when uh, the the rhino is at the office and uh, Mrs. Boof is, just, they're they're talking about the fact that her husband has turned into a rhino, and the the boss is like, you know, you could divorce him. You would be the injured party in this right, case, right? <laughs> and all the so kinda... many great, uh, yeah, just great dialogue pieces that Ionesco's written. Of course, in the original French, we're reading an English translation, but his sense of humor and his sense of witticism really shines through. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and all the, the the back and forth of uh Didard and Berenger as are talking about like what kind of disease this is, whether someone could like choose to come out of it, how they're going to convince anyone to choose to come out of it, whether or not they can judge anyone for choosing it is yeah, it's just all really sharp, really witty, back and forth all the time. It's and and so many great opportunities for physical comedy in it too. They're not specifically called for in the script, but there's so much destruction happening around. And and so much rumbling. And it's kind of a technically challenging play, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's there's one point that like they call for uh, uh, the specificity of an orchestra pit, um, and and needing the kind of to have the rhinos below the window. The rhinos are kind of running through the orchestra pit. So there there are some definite like uh, uh, challenges to overcome <laughs> in this play. Well. Ionesco is uh, a legend, a master. It's a privilege to get to talk about one of his plays. I'm sure we'll do another in the future, but that's probably the time we have for today. One more reminder that we only have now one episode left in this season. Next week, we'll talk about company. Uh, we're excited for that, but then we'll take a little bit of a break, and season seven will begin sometime in the near future. Not too long, but rest assured, we will be back with season seven sometime coming up. 
Yes, and whether it's this week where you're wanting to continue talking about the rhinoceros or any of the plays over the course of the season or or really in the in the now anthology of plays that we've talked about, we'd love to get to talk to you about it online. Uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about the rhinoceros or any of theater's best scripts with you. Absolutely. We would also love for you to recommend this podcast to your family and friends. You can send them to Podbean. That's where we're hosted. Um, But we are also on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the works. Um, You can connect with us on Facebook if you're not so technically savvy and you just want an easy way to click and listen. Like us on Facebook. Then you'll be able to see every Monday when the episode is posted, there's a link. You click the link, it opens it up, and you play it. It's as easy as that. So hopefully you'll connect with us in one of those places, and you'll send somebody else to connect with us there as well. So until next week, when we're talking about our last play of the season, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, a theater podcast. See ya. Uh, oh, what was the play that we did where the two characters just argue the whole time this year? It was, it, um, <laughs> I'm forgetting the play name. <laughs> <laughs> I'll interrupt you at argument drama. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it was like a whole, uh, it doesn't matter. I can't remember anything.